Welcome to Sonic's Flight, the podcast devoted to all things Sonics. Sonic's Flight is a monthly podcast discussing current events, news, and topics of interest to the Sonics community. We aim to entertain and educate builders and pilots of Sonics aircraft designs, inspiring them to complete and operate their aircraft safely and efficiently. Welcome everyone to the Sonics Flight Podcast. This is episode number 30, Flying the Subsonics Jet. But really, the name of this episode should be Subsonics by a Regular Guy. And we'll get to that in a second. So everyone dreams of flying their own jet, especially one that's small and fast and maneuverable. And Sonics has filled that aircraft dream for a handful of customers. But there's so much potential out there for others to actually get into it and fly the Subsonics as well. So we're going to talk about an early Subsonics customer we're going to hear his experiences about building and flying it and about how he as a, as a regular guy was able to kind of pull this off. My name is Jeff Schultz, builder and pilot of Sonic 604 and Sonic's 1374. Joining me as always are my two good flying buddies, John Gillis and Gary Motley. John flies a Jabiru powered YX and he's best known for his customizations, including his speed cowl, his uh, tilt back canopy and his cool toe brakes. So, um, John, you've been uh, trying to get some jet-like speeds out of your regular YX for years now, and you're probably a bit jealous of the subsonics, huh? Well, you know, I, I do fly a YX. All I really need to do is just put a big old rocket motor on the between the, the fins, and I'll I'll feel like a subsonics. Well, at little least you JTO. a solid rocket. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, I, I've got some uh, some insider info on uh, on some used JTO module so we'll get you one and we'll make that happen i knew you'd have me hooked up that would be scary we'll talk later (laughs) so also here is gary botley gary is builder of hound dog uh, an aero v powered tail dragger sonics he's a longtime pilot former cfi and has over 600 hours of sonics time gary what's going on oh just doing well these days just not getting as much flying as i'd like to do as you know but I'm, i'm working on it well and the the short days don't help that either no, I, I hate these uh, early night times. I mean, the sun goes down. I think I got to go to sleep. It just is the, the damnedest thing. Well, there's always the weekend. All right, and uh, our guest tonight is John Corneal. John is the fourth customer to complete and fly his JSX2 Subsonics. He brought it to AirVenture this past year in 2017, where he was awarded a Bronze Lindy. John's plane is a beautiful red and white with blue accents, and it just looks amazing. So, John, thanks for taking some time to talk to us, and really looking forward to this. Glad, glad to be here, and thanks for the compliments. I appreciate it. Absolutely. And so, receiving a bronze Lindy at Oshkosh is uh, pretty terrific in and of itself, but um, but what's it like to be the, the center of attention or the bell of the ball as a, only a handful of uh, personal jet pilots? Yeah, it was, uh, it was quite an experience. I... I've told people it was probably one of the best weeks of my life. You know, it was just the plane was show center and, and everybody wanted to talk about it and see it. And everybody's been waiting to see the first customer uh, plane in Oshkosh. And, and I was fortunate enough to be the one to bring it. Timing is everything. And you sure made it work. So that was awesome. Yeah. All right. Well, um, we're going to skip all the other business. Uh, no news this time. We're going to jump right into this. So, John, why don't you start off by uh, giving us a little bit of your background, your aviation background, kind of warm up to the point where you started thinking about a a jet. Okay, yeah. 
I started. Uh, I used to race cars, and uh, and I always have wanted to fly airplanes. I wanted to fly a jet since I was six years old. So that's always been in the back of my mind. <clears throat> but like most people, can't can't couldn't afford one. So I uh, in the seventies learned how to fly uh, gliders. That was my first introduction to to uh, flight, and then um, I went back to school and got a chiropractic degree. And when I came back, I decided I was going to do power flight. So started, uh, started my uh, power training. That was probably about 25 years ago and went through a Cherokee 140, then a Dakota. And then, uh, that, that flying club morphed into a Mooney 201. And then, uh, they sold out and I got a ovation, a Mooney ovation, which I still own. Uh, 2005 with a glass panel and then uh, <clears throat> I was pretty happy with that and and got the itch to build and started looking around at what was available and I, I was really impressed with John Manette's uh, Sonexes you know not only uh, from uh, from a couple points of view one was the the construction I thought they were great airplanes 6061 T6 and riveted pop riveted together it seemed like a a pretty straightforward uh, uh, build, and the and the planes seemed to be very robust, and and they were inexpensive. You know, you look at a, a RV or something like that, and you're up around the hundred thousand mark. And I was I was shocked that you could, you know, he was advertising Sonics's for thirty thousand dollars, and you know, I did my homework, and it looked like that was a very viable uh, possibility if you went with the Aero V engine. So. And John, this was this was to complement your your Mooney, not to replace it, right? Oh yeah, I'm not replacing that Mooney. <laughs> That's my go-to. Yeah, what was the mission of kind of getting a home belt or a Sonics ultimately? What was the mission you had in mind? Oh, it's just going out and having fun, you know, going out and playing and and yeah, okay, going going using grass strips and things like that, you know, because okay. because the Mooney is a much more sophisticated plane. You don't roll that out and fly it for ten minutes. So, um, yeah, I actually bought a, uh, and still have a, uh, a Sonics, uh, tail dragger. And I had started building that. I built the, built the control surfaces and the tail and was, uh, was working on one of the wings when, uh, John announced that he was going to build the jet. You know, I had been following that his the JSX one that had the fixed main gear and uh, just watching to see what happened with that. And uh, in 2014 at Oshkosh, he uh, made the announcement they were going to uh, to build it. And I called them up and told them to put me on the list. So sight unseen, basically just uh, he's doing it. So I'm in. I'm all in. huh? Yeah, I liked his, you know, I looked at his work through the years with the, with all the planes he had built. And, and he has a had a great reputation. He still does, um, of of building quality planes that that perform and they do what they were intended to do. And so when he announced the jet, I I had no reservations that this plane was going to be a a you know first class quality job that was going to be safe and uh, and and have come in at the specs that they said or close to it anyhow. Yeah. Right. Okay. Well, moving into construction, really. Um, so you said you started on your Sonics kit and, and how did that experience 
help or possibly hinder when you started building the subsonics? Oh, it helped a lot because just in building the control surfaces and the tail and starting on the wing, I then had experience with, you know, riveting and, and this is the first time I ever built a plane. So, so I was unfamiliar with, you know, up drilling and deburring and doing all those things. Um, in fact, when I, when I first built the Sonics tail, I, 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 I couldn't believe that all those pre-drilled holes would line up. So I actually clecoed the whole frame together for the tail and then, uh, and then clecoed the, 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 uh, surface on it just, just to prove that it all fit and, and then took it all pack apart and started on, on the thing. So by the time the jet came, you know, I was, I was ready to go. I, my shop was set up. Uh, I had all the tools, I had air rivet guns and, and a, and a real nice flat, large workbench and a place for the, for the plans. And, you know, it was just, boom, I just, I took the Sonics and I hadn't put the wing together yet. And I took it back apart and I put everything back on the shelf and, and, uh, started on the jet. Well, John, uh, about the build process then, since you already started with the traditional Sonics, I really liked the Sonics plans and the way they formatted them, you know, basically starting from the tail, working towards the front, and told mm -hmm. you exactly where the part was going to be, where it was going to go next in the page and the sequence. Did he follow the same kind of logic with the, the subsonics as well? He did. He did. They're, they're great plans. Now, the, you know, uh, in all fairness, the, you know, we were the, we were the beta the beta group, the first seven of us, and and there were uh, many, many errors, you know, little minor errors on the plans. You know, uh, there were different views that showed different construction or uh, call-outs for nuts and bolts and cotter pins were incorrect. But, you know, we'd call up and, and um, uh, Jeremy was still living at the time, and he... he uh, he was a big help. He was really right there, and and they got they got things squared away and went call back pretty quickly with the right answer. It just it, and they were pretty it, good about submitting uh, service bulletins too and updates to that, weren't they? Yeah, yeah. That, yeah that's what that, I really liked about Sonics. They really used to getting on the ball with updating yeah. all those discrepancies. Which yeah, was nice. Well, the other thing, if you look back at the uh, at the revisions for the any of their plans like even go back to the sonics or the yx or the one x there is this teething time on the first kits where there are all these revisions you know and then and then it all quiets down if you just look at them in the in in sequence so i i think the jet was pretty much the same thing so john to, to kind of put it in perspective would you describe these these little problems would you describe them as an, an annoyance or as more significant things that kind of had to be sorted out no, they were annoyances. They didn't, they, they weren't, there wasn't anything there relative to the integrity or the structural capability of the plane. You know, it wasn't like, oh, geez, this, this rib isn't big enough or something like that. It was just, it was minor, de it was details is really what it was. And they went, yeah. we were, we were barking, we wanted our kits and <laughs> they were, right. they were trying to get them out and they were behind schedule. And, and, you know, I think they just came to market probably. Um, three three months or maybe or a little more from when it was really ready to go. Well, uh, Mark had told me that they sold I think jet number fifteen at Oshkosh. So uh, I'm sure those guys have 
have had the benefit of your early feedback to correct all those little things? Yeah, they're all done. It's all it's all fixed. You know, the guys I'm talking to that are building now, they're not having any of that trouble. With all that was was uh, was corrected. You know, the, the drawings and everything are great. And like Gary said, the the, the Sonics drawings are are wonderful. You know, I've looked at other plans from other manufacturers and Sonics are just <clears throat> great, <clears throat> great detail and, and really spelled out well. And they're even doing some newer stuff now in, in 3d drawings to, to give you a good visualization from a 3d perspective of what the components look like put together. So the yeah, gear I hope everyone like starts that. to do that. Cause that would be a really a boon <clears throat> to the building process. Yeah, it really is. So, John, um, when you look back at the construction, what, what would you say the hardest part of the construction really was? Writing the check? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, that wasn't it. It was uh, developing the patience in building the plane. I'm, I'm a person that likes to get things done. And so, you know, I'll stay up till 1 or 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning trying to finish something and then, you know, suffer the next day at work. And it didn't take too long to figure out that, that I wasn't going to get this done overnight, you know? And so I had to start pacing myself and it was just like 10 o'clock rolls around. We're done. You know, the tools get dropped no matter where we are. And, uh, and there'll be another day to fight, you know, another day of work. So John, how many hours the, did you, did you take to build the plane or in over time? Was it like a two year process, three year? Uh, the, the plane was the, the plane was delivered on uh, February 20th, 2015. And its first flight was April 20th of 2017. So it was two years and two months. And uh, total build time, I kept track of it. It was uh, 1,625 hours. Was that a quick build kit? That was. There were only two ways you could buy it. Uh, uh, Sonics wanted to sell them as uh, exhibition category planes so they were pretty much done with all the control services and tail all put together <clears throat> there were a number of us of the first seven that said we didn't want to do that for two reasons one i didn't want to have to send a, a fax to uh, to uh, my fisdo and tell them i was going to go fly and uh, secondly uh, as an exhibition category you you can do repairs on the airplane but you can't do the annual inspection or the annual um, inspection on the plane, so I wanted to be able to do both. I, think I didn't want to have to deal with the FISDO. What's that? The inspection has to be done by an A and P. Is that correct? A and P, if it's an exhibition category, that's yeah. correct. So we told them that we weren't interested in the plane unless they do a EAB. So all they did was just not build the tail and the control surfaces, and that brought it into the fifty-one percent rule. And we purchased them like that, and they reduced the price of the kit $5,000 for that, which was, <laughs> in hindsight, <clears throat> you know, at $5 an hour, uh, it was, I, I would have been better off getting the exhibition category in terms of, of cost, but it, it worked out. That's, that's the way I wanted it. So now they're sold as, a, as an EAB, and if you want the exhibition category, it costs you another $5,000 to upgrade it. Mm-hmm. So they've gone. They've gone. They flipped and gone the other way. So, John, I I would have guessed that you would have said like electrical or avionics or things like that is the toughest part. But I guess uh, what what was that aspect like? 
Well, if if you after after the that being the big the big thing said in terms of you know getting the patients, the the next biggest thing was the avionics because uh, um, Sonics has uh, uses the MGL system and and it's a pretty basic um, VFR system that they sell with a plane and and I sat down and and priced out MGL and Dynon and Garmin. Uh, comparing apples to apples, so it all had, uh, they were basically shy of, of IFR uh, systems with ADSB in and out and a radio and all the rest, and, and they all were within $200 of each other in 20, late 2015. So, uh, you know, I'm used to the Garmin and its, and its integration uh, with the Mooney, and so uh, I decided to do Garmin, and Gar- the, the MGL has an 8.5-inch display, and they built the panel for an 8.5-inch display. Well, Garmin only has a 7 or a 10, 10 or slightly over 10, 10 and a, and a half. Um, and the 10.5 wouldn't fit in the, eight, uh, in the panel that came with the plane, so I actually tore out the panel and modified the interior of the airplane and build a bigger panel so it would hold the 10 and a half inch screen and that was a big project i probably spent four or five months just in building the uh, panel and laying it out for the garmin set is that a garmin g3 system yeah it's it's a g3x touch you know that's the other thing the plane is very small and there's not there's no room for radios and things like that and i mean for the face plates kind of thing so so the touchscreen was beautiful because everything the uh, transponder um, i'm going to put an autopilot in it over the winter and uh, radios and everything is all run on touchscreen on the g3x and the and the architecture is real good so that you can access those without a lot of fuss and do what you need to do so, so it keeps the panel open up to put other things. So I think a caveat for those who are listening who have not started building yet, whether it's a subsonics or any of the sonics or experimental, is that once you start deviating from the basic plans and you want to start tinkering and adding or modifying things, you can significantly increase your build time. And that's okay, uh, but it's just something to think about up front, right, John? Yeah, absolutely. I've, I've told people if you buy the – if you would buy an exhibition category – subsonics and just and buy their mgl um avionics package and just buy all that stuff and just and just put it together i think you can build one of those in nine months and under 800 hours probably 600 hours easily so i i i poked a lot at this plane i did did a lot of um a lot of uh, detail and a lot of uh things that i wanted it to have and look like so um yeah the hours go up exponentially real quick yep but the bronze the bronze lindy made it worthwhile though oh yeah that was that was the culmination of an incredible week i was shocked and uh and honored that i that i was awarded that yeah so john uh sonics talks about how simple the engine is to add to the airframe and integrate everything comes done for you was it really that simple, or was it more complicated than that? No, that was the easiest part in the airplane, honest to goodness. So tell us um, about that. Yeah, the, 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 it's 
funny that you know ship the engine engine and all the controls there's a throttle control and and a fuel shutoff and a filter and a couple other parts and pieces that they they throw in a box the box is like about three foot a three foot cube and and ship it directly from the czech republic where it's built with from uh, pbs it's called and uh and it shows up at the FedEx uh, terminal near us, and and the and all the stuff in the box, including the wooden crate, weighed 98 pounds. And so um, the the engine and its all the accessories, the whole thing is FADEC. It's all electronically controlled, and uh, Sonics furnishes the CAN bus uh, wiring system for it. And um, I literally just pulled the engine out of the box. Uh, took the plastic wrap off it, cradled it in one arm, put it on the on the on the tail, and stuck the two bolts in uh, by myself. And then the cables just—it's all plug and play. And um, and and the plans show you approximately where everything has to go in terms of layout, so your cable lengths are correct. And you just bolt everything there and plug it in, and it's done. There's nothing else to do. Well, that does sound pretty simple, you know, putting a, a regular engine and wiring it up is a several months just in itself. Yeah, firewall forward and anything, two cycle or four cycle is incredibly complex compared to this. Really simple. And the engine's really easy to run. It's just, you, you turn, the, turn the engine on, turn the fuel pumps on, move the throttle to idle, it spools itself up until it reaches uh, ignition and then it injects the fuel you don't have to do anything with the fuel and it starts up that's it it's ready to go in one minute hmm. and, and when you shut it down you just pull it to idle uh, to shut off uh, it shuts off the fuel and it continues the engine running till the hot section cools down to the proper temperature and then it turns itself off that's it that's the operation of the engine nice well that couldn't be simpler no unless you had auto throttles anything would make it simpler (laughs) (laughs) so john uh, i want to hear more about your your modifications and customizations and and the one that comes to mind is your trim lever Um, but tell us about that and tell us about the other things you talked about the avionics but all those other little things you did to get it just the way you wanted it oh man there's a long list here uh jeff you're gonna have to keep it keep it to like 45 minutes or so (laughs) okay well, you ask about the trim wheel. I, uh, you know, Sonics has a has their trim wheel, and it it's it's a nice mechanism that they use, and it's a a multi spring setup. So it's just a, a a tension thing that takes load off the stick, and it's the same system they use on all their Sonics's. But it's a it's a big red knob, and it it's you know turn left for for nose up, and turn right for nose down, or opposite of that. And and I dislike those things. You know, it's it's not intuitive. It's like the old uh, Cherokees that that had the hand crank up on the on the roof of the plane to yeah. to trim it. And it's like, which way do you go? You know, it's just a, it's not intuitive. So, um, and the other thing, they don't have a, a trim position um, indicator anywhere. So at least to uh, take off. You have to figure out how many turns it is, you know, and then turn it to a stop and then turn it so many turns so you're in the right ballpark. And from there, you can just trim up or down as you're flying it. So um, 
I took their mechanism, the their, their assembly, and took the red knob off, and bought a a Piper um, trim wheel, a black trim wheel, like you'd see in a in a regular airplane, uh, between the seats, and uh, moved the trim wheel down uh, between my legs, and then ran an indicator off of it, just a piece of aluminum, and made a uh, a pointer. And created a, a trim indicator, and put a little piece of plexiglass over it, and then uh, marked it. And so now it's you know you push the wheel forward and it's nose down, and you pull the wheel back and it's nose up. But it's it's the same mechanism that they they're using. So ni- nice, uh, I like it. It's a nice setup now. And then, uh, geez, there's so much. Uh, the air pump that came in it was um, a 12 volt system. Uh, this is the air pump for the uh, gear, the gear up and down. It's a pneumatic system, and uh, and it takes almost 20 amps, at least the one we got. I think they have a new pump now, but it's still 12 volt. The engine is this air. The engine system is 24 volts. And uh, just to back up a little bit, the complication with it is that the generator starter in the jet engine is 30 amps total. And the engine takes nine when it's running. So that only leaves you 21 amps to run everything else in the plane. So uh, the air pump at 12 volts needed almost 20 amps. So with the engine running, the air pump would actually get you into negative amps. And and John's contention was, you know, it's a, it's a workable system. Um, and the pump doesn't run that long, a minute and a half. And then it'll draw the battery down a little bit, but as soon as the pump turns off, it 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 charges the battery back up. Um, I didn't like that, and and I was concerned too. If you blew an airline, uh, it would be possible because the circuit breakers that are shipped with the with the uh, kit are um, are they'll they'll trip and you can reset them, but you can't pull them. Uh, they sell them in aircraft spruce. They're they're great little pieces. They're only three dollars and fifty cents a piece, but you can't pull them. And so, um, you know, if you want a pulled circuit breaker, they're about thirty dollars a piece, twenty-five, thirty dollars a piece. So, um, you know, I was concerned if you didn't have a, <clears throat> a pulled circuit breaker and the, and you'd lose an airline, if you were at sixteen thousand feet cruising and the pump came on and you couldn't turn it off, you would eventually wear the batteries down and you'd have an in-flight emergency with no engine. So uh, we found a 24-volt pump, a very efficient pump out of Avair in California. It then only took uh, six or eight amps. So it was a much more efficient pump. It ran half the time and uh, weighed just a pound more than the one they had. So we replaced that. That was one of the modifications we did. And and we upped the pressure a little bit. They were running with 80 pounds of uh, start pressure and 100... 110 uh, max pressure, uh, and with that, if you pull g- some G's in the plane, the, the main gears will slump out of the wells. So we also changed our pressure um, sensor in it that it turns on at 110 and turns off at 145. The system will easily take 150. So <clears throat> the other modification that Bob Carlton has done in his, he has a a momentary switch that he can bypass the pressure switch 
and pump the system up to 150 pounds. And that pretty much keeps it in the wells um, under up to about 4 Gs. So we did that. Uh, the other thing he had, uh, they have a, there are two fuel pumps in the, in the jet and, and only one switch to turn them on. Um, I found out that, that the engine at full throttle will not run on one pump. Uh, it'll spit and sputter and you have to pull the throttle back to less than full power in order to keep, it'll keep running. It just won't run smoothly. So I was concerned with that, that, um, you know, if you had a, had a go around emergency go around and one of the pumps had failed, you wouldn't know it because they both sound the same and you wouldn't know it till you put the coals to it and then it wouldn't, it wouldn't go. So, uh, I put, added another fuel pump switch. So, so in the pre-flight you turn one pump on, make sure it works, turn the other pump on and make sure it works and then turn them both on to, uh, to start the engine. And the other thing I can do then is uh, you don't need much fuel when you're cruising, so I can turn one pump off and save it rather than run both pumps uh, and give it a little better um, uh, life expectancy. So that's another thing. And then there's no storage in the plane, so uh, one of the armrests, I, I modified it and put a storage box in it with a little, um, like a, like a um, glove box, so to speak. And so I have a place to put the... Um, the um, the flags, you know, for the for the pedo cover and and uh, the um, the landing gear switch and that kind of thing, and and also a a personal a locator beacon that I carry with me. So I did that. Um, added standoffs on the wingtips for the nav and strobe lights. Um, I built some custom brackets and put landing lights on the gear legs. Um, that was kind of cool. So, so they fit right up in the, in between two ribs in the wing and then, uh, come down on the gear leg. So that was kind of cool. Uh, the, like all the Sonics the, uh, brake lines are all plastic. And, uh, the, the issue with that is that unlike the other Sonics uh, in the jet, when you have the engine at idle, it's turning 30,000 RPM and producing about 30% thrust at idle. So when you land the plane, if you don't have brakes, you will not stop. You'll go off the end of the runway, no matter how long it is. It'll just keep on going. Um, unless you can, it has an emergency shutoff. If you, like I said, if you pull it back to off position, like if you had an emergency, the brakes failed, and you pull it back to off, It'll keep spooling at idle until uh, the center section cools down, so you'll still get thrust out of it. So um, th there is an there is an emergency kill switch that you can turn the engine off, but it shuts it down before its its uh, its temperature is dropped. No one has asked. I haven't heard anybody that's been required to send it back after doing that. You know, because it, there might have been an over temp. But, uh, you know, not a good idea. So uh, with the plastic lines, I decided because the brakes were so critical in the plane that I replaced the, the uh, plastic lines with Dash 3 um, stainless steel brake lines uh, just, to, just to be extra safe with it. Another thing that was one of my, <laughs> one of my, 
one of my coups in this thing, I built a heater for it. Um, if you look at aircraft spruce, there's a little company in Texas called DC Thermals, and they build little tiny electric heaters for um, backhoes and skid steers and things like that. They build them in 12, 24, 36, or 48-volt systems. And so I got them to build me a 24-volt one um, and just two heating coils in it. So I've got 3,500 BTU with one coil and pulling 8 amps. And with two coils, it's 7,000 BTU and, and uh, 16 amps. And then I build a distribution box and put... Uh, uh, a heater line into the cabin up by my hand at the at the the uh, stick control on the right side, and then two smaller ones up to my f feet, and then if I close all those, they just have eye uh, eyeball vents uh, endings. And if I close all those, it'll blow uh, defrost air up onto the uh, windshield. I haven't had to use that yet, but you you know it's one of those you never know till till you don't have it. So, and those uh, have an, a fan included in them? There's a little fan, yep. Takes oh, wow. uh, three. So the whole thing with the distribution and the hoses and the heater, you know, is about, uh, it's about four or five pounds maybe at most, uh, maybe less. And, uh, yeah, real, real efficient little thing. So that was kind of cool. And, and it fit. You know, I got it in the plane. Yeah. Yeah, those all sound like great mods. Yeah, that was that was fun, and I put an aerobatic harness in it. Uh, um, uh, the other thing that you know, when you look at these in when they're even pictures of mine, like at the in the uh, home builders hangar, they're they're sitting just sitting on all three wheels. But if you look at the plane, the pilot position is is in front of the CG, it's in front of the wing. You're actually sitting in the nose of the plane. And, you know, if you figure that's 170 to 200 pounds, uh, the thing is actually tail heavy. And so uh, if you get out of the plane and just step away from it, it'll fall on its tail. So um, that's happened a couple times. And, and the, uh, the ventral fin on the back was originally made of sheet metal they've changed that to fiberglass but in either case if you drop it from its three-wheel position onto the tail you'll you'll damage the the uh, ventral fin to the point where it won't fly you won't be able to fly a plane it'll it'll drive it into the rudder the small rudder back there that they have on the v-tail so uh i put a tail stand in mine i built a built a bracket that i integrated into the the ventral fin, um, and then I have a tail stand with a wheel on it that goes in there. So when I get out, I lower the the plane onto the tail, and then I walk around the back and lift the tail back up and put the the tail stand in it, and so it sits up. When you see them standing, like at the if you like Bob's plane, if it's sitting there on all three wheels, if you look down in the wheel wells. You'll, you'll see three bags of lead shot weight and there's about 75 pounds of weight in there to keep it on its keep it on all three three uh, wheels um, the other the big thing as I was talking about was the avionics you know I, I put a full Garmin g3x touch in one radio 
Um, it has ADSB in and out. Um, with the what's interesting is uh, this will be something that your your um, your listeners will be interested in hearing. Um, with ADSB in, out, uh, you have to have a um, TSO'd GPS source, and the G3X and a lot of the experimental um, systems do not have that uh, rigorous a GPS source. But when you put a GPS um, TSO'd source in for the ADSB out, the G3X will ask which source do you want to use for your for your navigation. So you can choose either the one that comes with the G3X or the the better one. The the, G, the uh, GPS source they use for that is actually the GPS navigator out of the GTN series radios. 600 and 700 series radio so it's it's the it's the guru you know it's the one so with that it actually makes the plane ifr capable uh without without a certified navigator now that was real interesting because that's what i heard from the faa but if you talk to garmin and dynon and discuss that with them they'll tell you they won't discuss it because that's not, they say you can't do that. And I said, well, the FAA says I can do that. And they, they won't accept it. The, the, the manufacturers won't accept it. So it's a pretty interesting uh, discussion. Their, uh, their contention is you have to have a certified navigator in the plane. And, and, and the, FAA, the FAA guy said to me, show me in, in the regs where it says under the IFR requirements that it says anything about being certified hmm. so you picked up some some added capability uh just kind of as a byproduct of your adsb yes right right yeah uh, that's a I nice think, bonus well i think the my concern was uh and we didn't talk about this you're, you're going to get to this but the uh the range on the plane is is limited it has 40 gallons of fuel that gets you about an hour and a half of flight time and about 275 to 300 nautical miles and uh, and so, you know, with any jet, and, and especially this one, when you get to where you're going, you better be able to get on the ground, you know. So so if I'm going to Oshkosh or doing a cross-country and it's supposed to be a scattered layer and I get there and it's an overcast layer, um, I, it, it, unless it's IFR capable, I have to de- technically have to declare an emergency to, to get a clearance through the clouds. Um, so I told these guys, I don't want to fly this thing hard IFR to minimums. I just want to be able to file an IFR flight plan and, and break through a cloud layer, you know, to get to an airport or whatever. Like with radar vectoring, for example. Yeah, whatever it would be. Yeah, yeah. or just navigate a GPS, you know, because that's all it has is a, G- a GPS. But now that we have so many capable um, GPS approaches that, you know, you don't need an ILS approach anymore. There's there are overlays of GPS almost everywhere you go. So that was an interesting add-on. Well, John, since you're talking about flying, maybe let's uh, let's just back up one step and talk about the prep to start flying it and your training experience. So let's let's yeah. go through some of those things. Okay. So yeah. first question that comes to mind, um, I guess what what flying experience do you need? to start the transition training process? And really, what is the transition training process? 
I don't think any need any more than a private pilot license. To be honest with you. <clears throat> um, the, uh, the the process involves a a a, a process that that Sonics and the FAA worked out, uh, and it involves two things. Number one, you have to go to Moriarty, New Mexico, which is right outside Albuquerque, uh, to Bob Carlton's uh, desert aerospace um, business, and he has a uh, two-place tandem uh, bonus jet that has this the uh, PBS engine on it. So you you take flight lessons in that and. That is meant to give you the uh, the jet transition, so you learn the uh, the startup and the and the and the shutdown procedures and and get experience with the lag time in spooling up the engine, that kind of thing. But uh, the bonus of that is that um, the the they found that when the when the uh, spoilers are out in the in the sailplane, uh, and because in the jet, like I said, it has that 30% residual thrust. That in the in the landing configuration and on final, the the jet and the sailplane handle almost identically. So you really get some experience with what the jet's going to feel like while you're flying it. And then the sight line, because in the bonus jet you're sitting out in front of the wing, up in the nose, just like the jet, and it has a very you know it's just a small. Uh, landing wheel underneath the plane so the so even the distance off the runway is is almost identical and and so you get a get the training in that and then the only other thing you have to do is go up to uh, sonics and do a little flight time in the in a in a regular sonics in a propeller driven sonics because the wing airfoil is exactly the same on the jet as it is on the sonics now the structure is a little different inside but but the airfoil is the same. So if you do slow flight and stalls and steep turns in the Sonics, you actually are experiencing the slow flight characteristics of the jet. So if you can do both of those and pass that, you're ready to fly the jet. So how long did the transition training process take? Is this like a you go there, you knock it all out in one week, and you're done? Or did you have to space it out? Two days. Oh, wow. It was two days. Two days, two flights. It was little under one, little under two hours. Uh, and, and interestingly enough, it wouldn't even have taken that because uh, the first day I was there, they had a they had some great soaring weather. So we took the bonus jet out. <laughs> we took the bonus jet out and went over to the mountains and shut the engine down and stowed it. And and we were out for probably twenty to thirty minutes of that first flight just soaring in the thermals. And then, and then came back and lit lit it back up and did some uh, did some pattern work. So, you know, it was probably two, all told, relative to the jet training, it was probably two half hour flights. Now I have more experience, so I don't know whether that, I I don't know that that would be typical. You know, John, what kind of sign off do you get at the process? Do, do you does the FAA come out and give you an LOA or what does this look like? There is a. a a fellow by the name Bob O'Haver, and he is a designated examiner, and so he can sign you off for it with a temporary LOA, uh, letter of authorization, and then you take that back, and that gives you the authorization to fire yours up and take it out by yourself. And then uh, I think 
it's there's been some discussion. I don't know how long it is, maybe 30 days or 45 days uh, of of um, approval on the temporary, and then uh, you can get a designated examiner to uh, or have Bob fly out, which is what I did. Uh, just have Bob Haver fly out to my place and uh, do the flight test, and he issues you a uh, letter of authorization and new license. You're done. Okay. So essentially, you go to Bob Carlton, you get your essentially solo endorsement to practice on your own, you build right. experience, and then the FAA comes out and finishes the process. Yep, that's it. And, you know, it's a single-seat single airplane, so it's not like you can have the guy there telling you to do this stuff. So he, he, he basically uh, put a, um, a GoPro camera on a chest a rig so he can see... Uh, the view from the GoPro is the uh, panel and out the front windscreen and then gives you a list of, gave me a list of, uh, of, um, maneuvers and nothing, nothing, no one's ever done. You know, it's just slow flight, steep, steep turns, uh, you know, coming out on a, on a correct heading, uh, stalls, uh, a no flap landing, a, a bulk landing, uh, and a full flap landing. And that's, that's pretty much the, the routine hmm. nothing, nothing yeah. anybody hasn't done you know for even a right. private pilot license hmm. that sounds pretty painless then it is i thought it was really painless it didn't and, and like i said the, the the jet is easy to fly it's not it's not a you know it's not a twitchy twitchy uh you know delta wing that's you know two inches thick it's it's a it's a it's a hershey bar wing it's a pretty docile airplane John, have you flown a Sonics, a regular propeller-driven Sonics, more than just what you did at the uh, at the factory? Not very much. No, I I, I have a little time uh, in one, but I probably only have I have less than a less than two hours total time in a Sonics. Yeah. So it, it's hard for you to say whether the Subsonics flies like my WayX or not. Well, I went out and did uh, uh, again. The, the the comparison is not in in flight characteristics at cruise. It's the flight characteristics of slow flight and stalls. So I can tell you from the experience I've had with flying the factory plane, doing steep turns in slow flight and stalls, uh, that they that the two of them fly the same. Which is to say, very mild and well mannered. <laughs> yeah, you can't it, if you when you when you go to stall the jet. <clears throat> if you just pull the power back and then slowly bring the nose up, it will buff it, and then it will bobble, and then it will sink, but it will not drop off. It will not drop a nose. It will not head to the ground. It'll just start sinking. Uh, I said to Bob Carlton, you can't stall that thing. You can't get the nose to drop. And he laughed and he said, oh, yes, you can. He said, but you have to aggravate it. You know, you have to pull it to pull it to idle and then yank the nose up and, and pull it up hard in order to really s stall the wing. I mean, really aggravate it and then it'll drop. <coughs> Other than so that, it's more of an accelerated stall then? Yes. Yep. Hmm. John, what did your insurance require? Uh, I, you know, I have 2,700 hours of time in a single engine land, multi-engine land, uh, tailwheel endorsement, uh, instrument rating. 
a commercial license, a first-class medical, and I could not get hull insurance for the plane. And and their their contention was that, you know, as long as I passed the, did the training, and and uh, passed the test, or even with even at the after the training, they were willing to insure, give sell me liability insurance. So that's all they required. There wasn't anything else. Now they wanted a year, a year of flight time before they uh, provide hull insurance. Hmm. Okay. So aside from that, they didn't levy any kind of crazy uh, restrictions on you or anything. Nope. Mm-mm. Nope. Not at all. You said a year of flight time, so there's no hour requirement, just a calendar year. Yes, that's what they told me. So it almost makes me think they're just kind of looking to see if things are falling out of the sky. Yeah. Right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. If you can keep it in the air for a year, we think you're okay. Yeah. Yeah. There was no, you know, usually you, you guys have been through this. They, they usually say, you, you know, you need like with the Mooney, it's when I first transitioned to a Mooney, they said you need 25 hours of dual time before you can solo the plane. Um, you know, but, and the insurance companies were asking, were, have always asked for more dual time and training than the FAA requires, you know? But in this case, they didn't. They didn't ask for much. Well, they just simply weren't going to insure it for whole. Yeah. Now, some of my other, uh, some of the other guys who have uh, jet time. Uh, one guy had a L thirty nine. He got hull insurance right away. He had L thirty nine time, and the guys that have military time have gotten hull. So. What about airline guys? You know, multi-engine ATPs. Well, all these guys have been required to do the training, regardless of their background. So, a Southwest captain with twenty-five thousand hours would still have to go get that training. Yes, sir. That was my understanding. That's doable. You can talk him into it, right, John? <laughs> I'm working on it. We, we have some life specifically in mind, John Cornell. Well, Mike, Mike yeah. really wants one, and if he gets one, I'm gonna, you know, try to get on his uh, ticket. That's right. I'm gonna, I'm gonna buy into yeah. the Mike Needenthal Subsonics Flying Club. Yeah, yeah right. Exactly. Exactly. Gary too. I think <laughs> yeah. we're all Carl. Yeah. Why not? Yeah. Yeah. Well, John, tell us about flying it. Um, so describe a typical flight, and then we'll get into all the, the details, the speeds, the fuel burn, all that kind of stuff. So all just right. a normal flight. Yeah, a typical flight, I'll, I'll uh, like I said, flight plan for about an hour and a, hour and a half of flight time. And so I'll, I, you know, every time I fill the tank right to the brim um, with my, uh, my uh, empty weight and my body wow. weight. Uh, with full fuel, I'm 20 pounds under gross, which is a thousand pounds. So and, that uh, hour and a half of flight time, it gives you the 30 minutes of reserve. Correct. That's a that's a VFR okay. 30 minute reserve. Yep. And uh, so I I I I uh, count on an hour of fuel on the ground to get off, and then uh, it's. Um, you know, rolling down the runway, it's uh, accelerating to uh, 80 knots. And then uh, the thrust line on the engine is such that, that you have to pull the plane off the runway. It will not fly off the runway. It, it'll accelerate 
the whole way down the end of the runway and off the end if you don't pull it off because the thrust line keeps it pushed down. So, uh, so at 80 knots, just some back pressure to, and you, I just, I just keep pulling back till it finally breaks ground. And then you have to let go a little bit to, to uh, stabilize it. And then it climbs out at, uh, at 140 knots is a good, is a good speed and, and climbs at 1600 uh, feet a minute. And, uh, I'll, I'll pull the brakes on to stop the wheels from rolling on the mains, but the front wheel's still running. And so I'll wait six seconds, approximately six seconds, and then pull the gear up. Anything less than that. And the tire grows in, in diameter. And when I uh, put the nose wheel away, it'll, it'll rub on a shield I have in there to protect the, the wires and the, and the tubing on the, on the air pneumatic stuff. So I found that six seconds about does it. And then, then it'll climb, it started at 1600 and it'll finish up. It's a typical uh, flight if I can, if I can, uh, if the weather permits is 16.5 is a sweet spot for that plane, I think. Uh, it'll go higher. You, I think you could get up in the 20s, but there's not enough fuel. You know, you, you can get way up there and then run out of fuel. <laughs> so, so. 14 to 16 looks like a, a sweet spot. And and then, uh, so it's 100% power to take off. And then uh, as soon as it breaks ground, about 100 feet uh, back to 98%, because you're only allowed to run at 100% for five minutes. And then 98% will, will take you the whole way to 18 or 16.5. And then continuous is uh, 92%. And at 92%, you're getting... Uh, I'm I'm seeing 177 knots true, or about 205 miles an hour, um, and then it'll cruise there for, like I said, I just set it up to uh, to do a descent at 500 feet a minute uh, to end up in the pattern at 1,000 feet, and so I just wait for the G Theory X to to alert me that that I'm at that point. And then I'll pull the power back to about 88%, and and the nose will just drop down and settle at 500 feet a minute, and just ride that the whole way into the to the pattern, enter the pattern, land the plane. And usually there's 10 gallons left when I pull off, and it'll burn a gallon getting to wherever you're going, and so so turn the engine off with nine gallons in the tank. Is there any um when you stop for your fuel break, a, uh, a period where you have to let it cool down before you can restart it, or do you just don't care? No, it doesn't matter. So, so like I said, when you pull it back to the shut off, it, it, uh, it keeps spooling until it's cooled to where it needs to be. And then it just shuts down. And as soon as you fuel the plane, you just do go through the same start procedure you did when it's totally cold and it, and it does its own thing. There's no warm start procedure or anything. It just kind of figures it all out. Yep. Uh, there's a cold start procedure, and all that is uh, there's um, uh, there are two two sp- spaces before the idle, and one is a uh, uh, it 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 starts the uh, oil separator, and then the next one starts to spool it up but at a lower speed, and then you put it up in the idle and spools the rest of the way up and ignites. 
So there's no hot start. You just put it into the idle position and it takes care of it itself. The computer does it. So, John, uh, tell me again what, what your speed coming down final is. What do you aim for? Uh, it actually depends on the on the um, how rough the winds are, how, how turbulent it is. If it's if it's pretty pretty uh, stable and 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 smooth, um, final about uh, eighty knots and cross the threshold between eighty and seventy seven and eighty knots, and it'll just settle right onto the runway. It's pretty sweet. Um, it it doesn't fly well slow, and so. I, I found I'm still still young at this. I've got 50 hours on it. Um, I found that if there's a lot of crosswind and a lot of uh, turbulence, uh, I feel more comfortable with it if I'm I'm bringing it across the the uh, the numbers at 90 knots, and I'll and I'll fly it onto the runway. Still use full, full flaps. And how slow is is getting too slow? I think if you get down around 70 knots, you're you're going to have trouble. Okay. 70, 75 knots. Uh, the other the other thing that happens is if you decide you're you're not happy with the landing or someone pulls out on the runway, and you have to add throttle. Like I've said, the the thrust line is is down. So as soon as you push power on, the nose starts to roll over and roll down. And so if you don't have good elevator authority. Um, you're either going to be in trouble or you're going to have to pull the power back and do it with less um, with less thrust. So if you keep it up in that 80-knot range or above, you've got plenty of uh, authority to do whatever you want with the throttle. And, John, I, I think you mentioned um, last time we talked that below 100 feet, you're kind of getting into that zone where you're fairly committed to landing. Can you explain that? Uh, that is, that's, uh, Bob Carlton's, uh, recommendation that, you know, once you get below a hundred feet, you're so committed that if you, if you power up from there, you'll probably be slow enough and close enough to the ground that there's a possibility that you're going to touch down. Um, so his recommendation was make a final decision by a hundred feet and stick with it. Okay. But that's not related to engine spool up time or anything like that, really. I don't No, I don't think so. You know, if you if you stay at eighty knots with full flaps, you're going to be around um, high seventy to around eighty percent power. So you got you got pretty good engine speed. So when you if you if you decide to go around and you add throttle, the the spool up time is not going to be very much. It's only going to be a couple seconds. But if you're real slow and you're back at idle at seventy, you know, if you're at seventy five knots and and uh, 70% power, um, and then go to full throttle, uh, it's going to push the nose over, and you're going to have some spool-up time issue to deal with. It might complicate things. So you just don't want to get behind on it? And then... I've, I found I don't want to be behind on that plane. It just, you know, the, the, what I found is that you, know, you have 15, 30, and 45 degrees of flaps and and like a lot of planes, forty five degrees of flaps is like barn doors being out there. You're getting a lot of some nice drag. So I found that I'll use um, when I'm turning on to base or just before base, I'll I'll put the fifteen degrees in, and then uh, and that's around a hundred hundred knots, and then uh, come in in on base 
just before final, I'll depending on the height, you know, and where I am in the in the pattern, I'll go to a, a thirty degree flaps, and that'll bring it down to about ninety to ninety five knots, and then then it's the sight line, you know, if I and I'll push, I'll I'll come into the pattern at seventy knots to get the speed down to the uh, gear extension of 108 knots. Uh, and then as soon as the gear comes down, I'll push the power up to about maybe 75% and then run that through. And as I go to two notches, it'll probably take high 70s. And then depending on the sight line on final, then I'll decide when to put full flaps on. And then uh, with full flaps and around that same power setting, It'll settle right down, in, still at 500 feet a minute, settle right down into uh, 80 knots uh, to, to run over the threshold. None of this sounds particularly complicated. I mean, I, I found myself thinking about a glider. Same thing. You don't want to get behind in a glider because you don't have many options to get back on, on track. So right. you, you keep a little in the bank and you can always dump it at the last minute. Exactly. Yeah, the 45 degrees of flaps gives you a lot of latitude, a lot of latitude. What type of airports do you try to operate out of? Or really kind of what's, what's too small? Uh, I'm, I'm comfortable at 3,000 feet. That, that, that 3,000 feet or above is, is what, I, what I push for. You can use a lot less, but you have to really, you know, you have to be on speed and, and land at the, in the, in the, at the numbers, and you have to get on the brakes. You know what I mean? And I don't like really hard... What? Hard use of the brakes. What altitude are you talking about? Uh, in terms of uh, of uh, airport altitude, yeah, yeah. the altitude. Oh yeah, you guys have that thing out there in Denver, right? Yeah, we got that. <laughs> yeah, thing. we're, yeah. we're at like ten thousand density altitude. So what? Yeah, what would we're, you we're low be comfortable with? No, this is this is like uh, our airport is twelve hundred feet. Well, I'm not even sure we can talk to you anymore. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I live in an air Fair park enough. with a 3,800 foot uh, runway at 7,000 foot MSL with uh, density altitudes close to nine, nine to 10,000 feet. So I'm not sure you can land here. You can land yeah. anywhere once. <laughs> yeah, you can land. Yeah. Right. But John, listening yeah, well, to you talk, it, it doesn't sound like you really uh, uh, have a problem deciding, you know, to go or not go into an airport. If it's a regular airport, you can go in with no problem. Yeah. Yeah, I haven't found an airport that I went, mm, I don't know that I should go there. No. Yeah. No, most airports you get into are, you, you, well, again, I'm talking about lowlanders. Um, you know, 3,000 feet is pretty common. You see anything less than that, it's usually a grass runway. John, um, how does the jet fly differently than your Mooney or other airplanes? If you just kind of put it into a subjective sort of sense, how, how is it different? It's a sports car. The Mooney's this sitting in the living room, you know, cruising. This thing's a sports car. You know, if I if I put the Mooney into a sixty degree bank, I'm either going to have to put both hands on the wheel to hold it at level flight at sixty degrees, or back trim on the uh, on the trim wheel to, to hold it, the, the jet, I just, you can, you're going to roll it right into a knife edge, 90 degree bank into a hundred 180 degree turn with hardly any back pressure on the stick. The thing's so just, just like all the rest of our sonics planes then. Yeah. It's just like a little sports car. It just, it just, you know, bank, crank and bank, you know, it's just, it's a hoot to fly, yeah, but they are. In, in the same, same 
but it, in the same vein, it's not twitchy. You know what I mean? It's just sporty. It, sure. it, it it's real pretty stable. I, I what I hear you guys say, it's kind of like what you're flying in your Sonics's, right? Yeah. Just a little more speed. It's quieter. It's really quiet. It's unbelievable. On the ground, it's re- really noisy. And if you're on the ground and hear this thing go over, it it sounds like there's a there's an F-16 going overhead. But you look up and it's there's this little dot of an airplane that's not that high in the in the sky. And all my all the people that know me go, you know, I heard this jet going over. It sounded like military. And I looked up and it was just a speck in the sky. He said, I knew it was you. So. <laughs> Tell them you're uh, you're flying as a defense contractor on a on a program you can't talk about. Yeah, exactly. We're working <laughs> we're working on that. Hmm. All right. So ownership. Um, how easy is this jet to own? Uh, which aspect do you want to talk about with that? Well, um, pre-flighting it and. Well, all that. So, so like pre-flighting it and just kind of post-flighting and taking care of it and doing the maintenance and staying it's, proficient and hassle factor. Is it is yeah. it low hassle or is it kind of a an involved process? It's it's really simple. You know, the pre-flight's easy. The the post-flight, I just stick the plugs back in the engine and roll it into the hangar and and put it away. Um, uh, you know, I've been blessed in. You know, I apparently did a pretty good job in putting the plane together because um, there was only one minor problem that I had to repair, not repair, but just fix. I actually had forgotten to put a cutter pin in um, that I had delayed putting it in and I hadn't marked it. Um, Fortunately, it didn't cause any major incident, but that was the only thing that I've had to do that plane except change the oil in 50 hours. So it's been it's been hassle free. the the biggest The biggest issue with the plane is the oil has to be changed every ten hours. So um, that's that's a couple hours worth of work. But John, how many hours do you have on the plane? Uh, fifty, fifty point five or fifty two or something like that. It's just over just how much 50. time? Uh, that's since April twentieth. This year, I flew. Yeah, I flew okay. I from from April 20th to July 10th, I flew the plane 40 hours to get it to Oshkosh. Well, that's dedicated right there. That's the kind of flight time that Gary builds. <laughs> yep, weather and problems permitting. Yeah, I was flying sometimes twice a day, first thing in the early in the morning and then I'd go to work and then I after work I'd go out right in the evening, you know, when the when the when the air calm down, you know, because I was still new in the flight plan, and and take it out and roll with it. Yeah. Oh, wait a minute. There's I, I, I have a disconnect or disconnection uh, here. You work yeah, okay. and you own a jet? Yeah, I work. Yeah, it's the only way I can afford a jet. I have to work. <laughs> that's just so weird. <laughs> <laughs> What's the disconnect? <laughs> well, that's, that's the, John, that's the regular guy aspect, you know. This is not a you know, uh, uh, <laughs> uh, right. a, a situation where he's independently wealthy and lounges around on his yacht all day. Yeah, he's I, a regular I f- guy. I figure he's a trust baby here. <laughs> no, no, that's 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 Colorado. That's, that's 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 in your neck of the woods. I work. Uh, I work. 
Well, I've 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 slowed down a little bit because I'm getting close to retirement, but I'm working about thirty five hours a week. And I'm and I'm a chiropractor. I work with sick people, with patients all day. So it's uh it's interesting work, but it's challenging. And it and it you know, it pays pretty well. It's not I, I'm not a brain surgeon, you know, so I I'm not making a fortune, but uh it's enough to pay the bills. It's the only jet I could afford. You know, that's why I built this thing. <laughs> It's right. the only jet I could afford. I the, for years I would look at, you know, an L L thirty nine or a, an old Citation one and whatever, and you can buy the damn things cheap, but it costs you a fortune to maintain them, or to get one that doesn't cost you a fortune to maintain, costs you a fortune to buy it. Yeah, so, you buy an L thirty nine. The lowest check you'll ever write is when you buy it the first time, and then after that, <laughs> yeah, right. the bleeding starts. Yeah, right. It's like I I flew a right seat in a in a King Air. Uh, F90, and uh, as we were coming back from Boston, the guy was chit-chatting about the maintenance on the plane, and he said, "He said, yeah, you know, it's a pressure vessel, and and so after so many cycles, they have to be checked." And so he said, "It just went through its check, and they have to tear the interior out of it, and then pressurize the thing, and look for leaks and all that stuff." And he said, "There wasn't anything wrong with it." He said, "Everything turned out to be really well." And I said, "How much did it cost us to do the pressure test?" He said, thirty-five thousand dollars. I said, "My God, I, that would that would ground me <laughs> for for a couple of years." Uh, so, John, uh, let's wrap up this discussion with uh, ramp appeal. So, tell us tell us what it's like to roll up to the FBO in in the in the jet. Oh, it's a hoot! It's just a hoot. Number one, when you when you do an overhead to enter the downwind, there are already people standing out on the ramp, going, "What the heck is that?" And then by the time you, I land, there are at least half a dozen people, depending on what size airport, and uh, crowded around it and want to know what it is and you know who built it and what is it and that kind of thing. The, the, the greatest one was uh, we have an EAA chapter that's uh, about oh, 15 nautical miles from my airport, and I was still in my tight flight test program in this airport that they run their... Um, their um, breakfast at. They have a breakfast every second, the second Saturday of every month. And so they get not only fly-in people, but they get a lot of local people that come out. They really put on a good a good uh, breakfast. And so I waited till the thing had started, and then I, I rolled it over the mountain, and this is, airport is in, in this little valley, and I, and, I, and I just put it in a five-degree pitch down and, and left it at 92%. And when I crossed the field, perpendicular field, and entered the downwind, I was doing 200 and, about 205 knots. And then I just kept rolling it, kept, kept descending at 500 feet a minute, and rolled it into a, onto a base and then onto a final, and then, and then leveled off about 200 feet off the runway and went down the runway at 235 knots. And then pulled it up and entered the downwind and put the gear down and landed the plane. And when I parked it, there were 75 people <laughs> around the plane going, what the hell is this? <laughs> <laughs> Cheering and waving. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was just it, you know, incredible. And everybody wanted to know who, who, what it was and who, if I'd build it and all that stuff. It was fun. You know, it was kind of like Oshkosh, you know, sitting well, in, the, in the home build hangar. Well, John, I don't want to burst your bubble, but I get that every time I land my my WayX, too. I don't doubt it at all. Yeah, but, you know, John, on the YX, um, 
the girls aren't nearly as pretty as with the jet. Plus, you have a you have another seat. You can go take them for a ride. <laughs> the small ones. Exactly. <laughs> All right, uh, John. Let's uh, let's wrap this up. So. All right. What uh, what advice would you give someone who's thinking about doing this? Do it. Just do it. You know, if you have the, uh, I've told people, if you have the passion, uh, and you have the 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 will, just go buy the kit and do it. Don't procrastinate. You know, the great thing about now is that when when I built my bought my kit. It, it was $120,000, and you had to pay it all up front, and everything came. You, you got the, the first thing that came in my kit was my, the parachute two and a half years before I was going to need it. It showed up in December, and the plane didn't even arrive till February. And the engine came by, by March, and it sat in a crate for a year. Um, so uh, I had to pay it all up front, and now you can break the kit down. And they've lowered the price $15,000 from what I paid. And so you can buy the airframe for $42,000 or $40,000, I think it is, and get started on and then then buy pieces as you can afford it and put it together, you know. Just it, it makes it much more affordable. And we talked about bucket list items, and uh, I think a lot of people, that, that is a bucket list item. Oh, absolutely. It was on mine. You know, I, I'm, I'm happy as a clam. There's only one thing better that could happen, and that is if somebody designs a, a two-seat, twin-engined version of this. Yeah, and if Sonics did that, uh, would you build again? Oh, yeah. In a flat. There, isn't their, um, their drone program going to have a two-engine uh, version of this? Yeah, they have one on the on the sides of the tail, but it's 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 just replacing the single seat with a fuel tank. Okay, it 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 won't work. You know, All there's right. no place to put two people, and no place for fuel. It's going to be a it's going to actually have to be a clean sheet plane because the wings are going to be bigger. It's going to be set up differently, and um, it it they had actually talked about doing a two seat single engine. And we all told them, don't bother. It would be too slow. You, you, that, that engine just doesn't produce enough thrust. It's 250 pounds of thrust. It just wouldn't be enough. I, I, don't, know, I don't know how much better it would be if you got the 300-pound you know, version, but I don't think it would be enough. Yeah. John, had, uh, John Monette had told me that they had run the numbers and they think they could do a two-place on the same existing engine. But again, you still want it to take your breath away. You don't want it to barely work. So right. I'm with you. You need to kind of make sure this thing is going to have the punch. Yeah, you might as well build an RV-8 or, or you know, something yep. like that. You know, you, you, get, you have the same fun factor with a lot less money. Yeah, because you... So... Yeah, already people go, wow, it's only 177 knots in cruise. And I said, you know, that's really not important. The important part is that it's positive 6 Gs and negative 3. That, that's what's important. And it, yeah. makes, and, it, and it makes jet noise. Yeah, well, if cruise speed was the only criteria got measured by, that might be a little different. But uh, cruise speed is just one of many factors to consider. Well, the girl factor people- at the FBO is huge. Uh, that's the big one. 
<laughs> Although you don't find many girls at the FBOs. That's the well, John Gillis, I can tell your wife's not listening to this podcast tonight, right? That, that's correct. Um, <laughs> she might be, because she knows I'm not going to get the subsonics until she passes. And I, in- I inherit her uh, wealth. Like you, you keep talking like that, John, and she's going to guarantee that you pass first. Oh, she knows that. <laughs> All right, uh, uh, John. Any final thoughts? Just, just tell people. Tell your friend out there in Colorado. Just build it, for God's sakes. We will. What's what's, what's he waiting for? You know, it's just. I like, just this. texted him and said, "You've got to listen to this podcast. It's a good one." Well, and for anybody who is listening to this, um, if they want to get in on the uh, the Colorado Subsonics Flying Club, they need to there send us go. an email with a statement of interest. That's right, and uh, and a deposit um, check, twenty five percent, please. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we want to do an Icon A five step. We want a hundred people with a ten thousand dollar deposit. Gary, we can get Carl to buy one of these, I think. <laughs> Helping build it. Uh, getting Carl to uh, to fund it is going to be the biggest problem, but getting us to build it for him, not a problem. Uh, okay. Good. That sounds like a six-month project to us. Yeah, that's uh, that's what Mike did. He um, he found a good deal on a, on a used, partially-built Sonics. And uh, brought it back, and then we did all the work for him. So he just sat back and directed traffic. Well, there's there have been two two subsonics that have been sold. Uh, a Regis sold, obviously, and then there was a fellow in Tennessee that bought the kit and everything. He bought the trailer, he bought the avionics package, he bought everything, and never even opened a box. And it sat for a year. Then he decided he wasn't going to build it, and he sold it for quite a substantial loss. Mm. I was sorry I didn't hear about that one. To, that, to that, that happens with a lot of kids, though. I mean, all yeah. across the whole spectrum. I was just surprised it happened that quick. You know, Within a year of them coming out, two of them were already sold. So that was kind of a surprise to me. I thought it would take longer than that. All right, John, thanks again for coming on. Uh, really enjoyed listening to you, you know, run through the process. And and uh, it reaffirms what I, I came into this episode thinking, which is this is totally doable for a regular old person. You don't have to be a superhuman, ex-military, fighter jock, uh, independently wealthy. A person of, of reasonable experience and means really could make this work. And that's just super exciting. Yeah, it's been a pleasure speaking I think you're with right. you. Yeah, it was nice being with you guys tonight. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, uh, our next show, uh, we're looking at teeing up some some various alternate engine installations. Uh, we've got uh, Corvair in a box coming up. We've got a Viking show coming up. We're looking to get a UL Power and Rotax uh, episode scoped out and lined up. So we're going to try and over the next few months hit some of these other engine options and talk to people that are actually doing it. So um, it should be a really good next couple of months as we kind of dig into some of these details. And again, if you have something in mind or you have uh, an aspect of these various things that you'd like, send us an email, give us some feedback, and we'll make sure we kind of work that into the discussion. You can visit us on the web at sonicsflight.com. Subscribe to the podcast in iTunes or Google Play or whatever 
Apple's calling their new podcast app today, uh, or, or your favorite podcast app on your smartphone. And you can find uh, the show notes online at sonicsflight.com slash three zero. So go check that out. We'll put uh, links to the Sonics aircraft, uh, Subsonics overview page, and then uh, the recent Aero News story with John Corneal. Um, they did a really good job kind of highlighting that. So that's a good uh, five or six minute video that really shows it off well. And then, uh, John, I saw that you were at a, an article in a, uh, I think it was the State College Magazine where they did a yes. write up on you. That was really good, so I'll put a link to that in there as well. I can send you some flight video if you want to throw some of those somewhere. Absolutely, and if it's on YouTube, just send me the link, and we'll post the link to your YouTube channel. Okay. And we'll we'll do that. And if you, if anybody has questions, I'm sure they can reach out directly to you, John. You can um, sell another Subsonics, and I'm sure Sonics would be happy to uh, to sell them one. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> You're going to be the self-appointed subsonic spokesman. <laughs> I, th- I think I've already gained that. Well, good deal. Thanks again, John. Uh, great talking to you, and I look forward to seeing you uh, down the road, maybe at Oshkosh again. Or sun and fun in the spring. I'll be there. All right. Talk to you later. All right. Hey, uh, Gary, John, thanks again. Good to talk to you guys as always. Talk to you all later. Okay. See you later. Bye-bye. Views and opinions expressed on the Sonic Slight podcast are those of the hosts and guests alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of any individual, company, or organization mentioned on this program. Nothing presented on this podcast should be construed to be the official position or recommendation of anyone not directly associated with Sonic Flight. Anything that sounds like advice should be carefully considered before being implemented. Remember, you are the pilot in command. I've got a local guy here that's talking to me about one right now. Ex-Air Force uh, Academy guy, yeah. Either that or a BD-5, because he's really enamored with the BD-5, James Bond stuff. Yeah. If he wants to fly, he needs the Sonics. If he yeah. wants to dream, go buy a BD. <laughs> that's what I'm thinking. <laughs> it's, that, that BD-5 is harder to build. It's not an easy build. And... Uh, and the engine they have in it, it's faster than the subsonics because they have a 300-pound uh, uh, thr- of thrust engine in it, same engine, but it has a different computer in it. But what they don't tell you is that it, instead of having a 300-hour TBO, it has a 100-hour TBO. Whoa. Yeah, exactly. That's what I thought. Whoa. I, I, I go fast enough. You know, I, I don't need that. <laughs> So, John, if you throttle back, does that extend your TBO? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, Mike would look good in a Sonics. Um, That would definitely improve his his overall... His je ne sais quoi. Yeah, exactly. There you go. I was looking for the right word. And then he, you know, he could he could get out. He could walk into the FBO. He could take off his cool guy sunglasses, and he could just hand somebody, you know, the first person he sees, he could hand him his coat and his and his empty beer can and say, "Hey, hold this," yeah, and just keep on walking. Hold this. I'll be back in a minute. <laughs>